Please open it up to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter uh, 13, probably be our first stop this morning. Um, For those of you who are here, new guests, visitors, or a number of you, we have just concluded a multi-year study of Luke's gospel, verse by verse, getting through the largest of the four gospels, and now we're ending a series of sort of summary review messages. It's my goal through these last four or five weeks that it would help, especially those of us who've been here for the last four or five years um, of our study, would be able to help to see the forest and the trees. As we go through verse by verse, we're looking at the trees. Now we're standing back more and trying to see the forest. And this morning's message, the the notes are in the bulletin. You will notice they are double-sided. And about halfway through preparation this week and on Friday, I concluded there's just no way we're getting through all of this in one Sunday. So this Sunday, and God willing, next Sunday, we will um, do our final review, which is Luke's presentation of Jesus and his three main offices of prophet, priest, and king. How does Luke present Jesus in these ways? And so let's go right through in those three um, categories. And again, the goal is so that you might go back next time you read Luke and notice, here's Luke's beginning to present Jesus as a prophet, as a priest, as a king. How does Luke do that? The gospel writers um, do that differently with different emphases. So we'll be moving a lot through, through Luke. Um, the format for each of these points is first to do some sort of Old Testament study. What, what would we expect of the Messiah from the Old Testament as it relates to prophet, as it relates to priest, as it relates to king? Then we're going to look at, okay, how then, in light of that expectation, does Luke actually present Jesus in this way? And then thirdly, so what? What practical application or significance is there? Is this just purely some esoteric study about the offices of Christ? I believe that is not the case at all. One of the other matters that can be difficult for us is all three of these categories, prophet, priest, and king, are very foreign to us. We are a people who do not have a king. We, we th- staged a revolution to throw off a king. We're not people's used to having rulers and kings. And that's probably of the three titles, the one closest to our understanding, let alone prophet and priest. So we have to sort of ask the question fundamentally, what is a prophet? What is a priest? What is a king? And how does that relate? So with that as an introduction, and I don't know exactly how far we'll get. We'll just go until we run out of time and then pick it up next week. Um, let's dive in. Jesus as our great prophet. And hopefully you've got your fingers open to Deuteronomy 13. Now the prophet helps answer the question of how we can know anything about God. That, that may seem a strange question to ask. So often when I talk to people, I hear things like, I like to think of God this way, or I imagine God this way. That goes against the very notion of a God. A God, definitionally, is outside of the created order. If if your God or understanding of God is inside the created order, he's a creature. If God made all things, he is then separate from all things. He is, to use the, the guild speak, transcendent. He is above. He transcends what is. And one of the necessary implications of God being transcendent is we cannot, by our own bootstraps, reach up to him. Which is to say, if God does not initiate communication with us, we can necessarily know nothing of him. 
God has to initiate communication. God has to speak and reveal who he is to us. It runs counter to so much of our modern thinking where, of course, God should be exactly like I like to think of him. Well, the prophet, then, is the person who who's largely solves this dilemma. How can we know anything about this God? God must reveal it. And God can reveal it through direct speech. It appears that's what's taking place in Genesis when he speaks to Adam, when he speaks to Abraham. He can send um, dreams. He can send angels. But by and large, the, the number one way God speaks to his people is through the prophet. He spends, sends and commissions a man to speak for him. And I think a way to think of a prophet's function, prophet and priest are very closely related. Both stand in between God and people. The prophet stands in between God and people on behalf of God, speaking to the people, giving God's word to the people. That's the function of a prophet. A prophet, so Moses goes up on the mountain, Mount Sinai, and he comes down, here's what God wants you to do. And and the prophet goes and speaks to David. This is what the Lord God says. So the prophet is an intermediary between God and man on behalf of God speaking to men. And Deuteronomy 13 makes this clear. There there may or may not be miracles associated with the prophets. Some of the prophets, like Elijah and Elisha in the Old Testament, do. Many others do not. The common factor of a prophet is they speak God's word on God's behalf to men. So look at Deuteronomy 13. And we'll see this negatively, right? So here's a word about false prophets. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of the prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. But this prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commands you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. So the signs and wonders may accompany, but they're not the central aspect of a prophet. His message is what is central. And so the point here is, if his message conflicts with what God has said, regardless of how many signs and wonders and miracles he works, you put him to death. Now turn a couple chapters later to chapter 18. Your first blank here. Prophet spoke to men on behalf of God. That's the fundamental notion of a prophet. Prophet speaks to men. On behalf of God. Now Deuteronomy 18 is where we get our messianic expectation. Now Moses is of course um, one of the first great prophets of God. Abraham is referred to as a prophet in Genesis. But Moses being the first author of scripture. And speaking consistently to a people. The people of Israel on behalf of God. Is the first to really walk this prophetic function and cast fully. Serving consistently as the one who speaks to the people of Israel on behalf of God. The one who will write it down so that when he dies, there's a book in Joshua's hand. That Awana verse that many of you have memorized. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you should be careful to meditate upon it day and night. Joshua's got a book. Probably a scroll. 
but he's got writings. So Moses is speaking God's word. Moses is writing God's word. And through the prophet Moses, God did a tremendous deliverance from slavery of his people. He brought them into a new land. He gave them rest. And in the book of Deuteronomy, which is sort of Moses' series of farewell addresses and a re-summary of the law, we get this word in 1815. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God and see his great fire anymore, lest I die. And the Lord said what they have said is what they, they are right in what they have spoken. So there, again, we see the basic notion of a prophet. When they came to Sinai and God was speaking the thunder, they were terrified. Let someone else go talk to God and come give us God's word. We don't want to hear God talk or we will die. So the prophet fills that role. Verse 18, I will raise up from them a prophet like you and from among their brothers. Now put my words in his mouth. He shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So here's this prediction that God is going to raise up another great prophet like Moses. You turn to the end of the book of Deuteronomy, highlighting the importance and the significance of this promise. The end of the book of Deuteronomy after the record of Moses' death, likely written by Joshua, we're reminded of this. Go to Deuteronomy 34. Start in verse 9. Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. So the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. And then in anticipation of the question, so then is Joshua the prophet like Moses? If he's filled with the spirit and if Moses passed his mantle and his leadership to him, should we understand that Joshua is this one that God said he would raise up? Verse 10. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt and to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. So the book of Deuteronomy, the law of Moses, closes with this expectant reminder. He hasn't come yet. And we should expect great things of this prophet. He will very much be like Moses. Yes, Joshua is commissioned. Joshua has the spirit. Joshua is God's chosen leader. Joshua is not the prophet like Moses. So the blanks here, God promised to raise up a prophet like Moses. And this is very much in the messianic expectation of the Jews of Jesus' day. We won't turn there, but in John 1, when the Jews send a delegation to interrogate John the Baptist, one of the questions they ask him, are you the Messiah? No. Are you the prophet? This is what they're referencing. Are you Deuteronomy 18? No, I'm not. So remember, the key factor of this is God's going to raise up a prophet from among you, like me, from your brethren, is to him you must listen. Okay. Let's turn now to Luke's gospel and begin to look at the New Testament fulfillment, Luke's presentation. So there's the expectation. We've just briefly looked at what is a prophet? What function do they serve? They bring God's word to God's people. They speak authoritatively for God. And in what connection do we expect the Messiah to come? Well, we're expecting a great prophet like Moses. Okay. With that in mind, 
turn to Luke 4. Luke presents Jesus recognized by the people as a great prophet. And actually in Luke 4, Jesus him first will take the t- title on himself just to demonstrate that Jesus claims to be a prophet. Um, Jesus stands up in his hometown in Galilee, reads from the scroll of Isaiah, says, that's me, that's me. Isaiah 61, that's me. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news, verse 18. To the poor, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up a scroll and gave it to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That's me. That's me, he says. And he recognizes that because he grew up among them, they're having a hard time with these claims he's making. And so he says to them, truly in verse 24, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. There's Jesus claiming to be a prophet. Now turn to chapter 7. When, as Jesus works notable signs. Now Jesus in Luke's gospel, remember, is first and foremost a preacher and teacher. The miracles confirm his message. The miracles are mighty. He's raising people from the dead. He's cleansing lepers. But the miracles always are there to substantiate, testify to his word and his message. And so in Luke 7, verse 16, after he raises the widow's son, similar, in fact, to a miracle wrought by Elijah over another widow's son in the book of Kings. Verse 16, and fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us. So what Luke's showing is the people of Israel are recognizing in Jesus' pattern of ministry that he is a prophet. Why? He's teaching and he's speaking, and these great miracles and signs are confirming his message. A great prophet has arisen. Go a little further in verse 39 of the same chapter. This is the question being mulled over by Simon the Pharisee. And Luke is assuming his readers are mulling this over as well. Verse 36, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited them saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him. So the very question being mulled over, being entertained by Simon the Pharisee is, is this man indeed a prophet? So the first time the public has identified Jesus as a prophet is in chapter 7. Then we get again, is is this man a prophet? Is this man a prophet? Turn to chapter 9. Question gets asked again. It starts showing up here. And it's going to culminate in chapter 9. This issue of Jesus being a prophet. 9-7. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening. And he was perplexed. Because it was said by some that John has been raised from the dead. By some that Elijah had appeared. And by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. And Herod said, John, I have beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear these things? Here's another person Luke presents mulling over who is Jesus. Is he a prophet? 
So Jesus is recognized by the people. The report goes around. They see in Jesus and his ministry the teaching authoritatively of a prophet. They see the, the signs that accompany it. So just keep going. So he's recognized by the people. Then he's testified to by the Father. Before we get there, and just keep going in 9. Um, verse 18. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And see, this issue of who is Jesus keeps getting repeated. Luke is putting before us, for Simon, who is he? Is he a prophet? Herod, who is he? Jesus, who do people say that I am? I mean, Luke wants us to get this by this point. We're supposed to be thinking that over. We're supposed to be coming to a conclusion. And by the middle of chapter 9, he expects we will have concluded it. Because God the Father is going to testify to Jesus' identity. Settle the issue. Who do the crowds say that I am? Verse 19, they answer, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah, and others, that one of the prophets of old has risen. And he said to them, who do you say that I am? Peter answered, the Christ of God. And that's the right answer. Peter nails it. He gets an A on the test. Verse 28, now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. Behold, two men were talking with him. Moses and Elijah. Now, here's your first tip-off. Moses showed up. That's, that's pretty significant when we're looking for a prophet like Moses. And Elijah, the other major prophet in the Old Testament. Moses and Elijah, the two prophets to whom great signs and miracles accompany their ministry. Other prophets don't have that consistent pattern of miracles and signs accompanying them, but Moses and Elijah do. What are they talking to Jesus about? Verse 31, who appeared in glory and spoke to him of his ESV, departure. ESV, though, helpfully has a little footnote. Greek, literally, his exodus. Now, that should be raising all sorts of flags and alarm bells. Moses shows up to talk to Jesus about his exodus. Okay? It's going to get clearer still what he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. So Jesus is about to accomplish an exodus in Jerusalem. Now, Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. When they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses, one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud overshadowed them, and they were afraid as entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, now here's the Father's testimony, and the Father's going to link Jesus with three offices. We're just focusing on one here. We'll come back to this for a second one a little later, probably next week. Let's be honest. This is my son. That's linking him with Psalm 2 and the, the Davidic kingship. We'll deal with that next week. My chosen one, linking him with the servant Psalms in Isaiah. And then, listen to him. Remember what Deuteronomy 18 said? Deuteronomy 18 said, and I quote, oh, wait a sec, you probably should have this on hand before I say, and I quote, um, the Lord, your God, will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you and your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I'll put my words in his mouth. He shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. This is God the Father going on record saying this at last 
is the prophet like Moses. Moses is present to testify to it. He's about to accomplish an exodus because he will deliver his people from slavery. He will bring them into a promised land. He will inaugurate a new covenant like Moses does at Sinai. This is the greater prophet like Moses. It is testified to by the Father. And then we see clearly, point three, he taught the people the word of God. He, he fulfilled the function of a prophet. Turn to Luke 5. I love this. On one occasion, when the crowd is pressing in on him to hear the word of God. There's Luke, the narrator, making it clear. What Jesus taught was not his own opinion, not his own personal preference, What Jesus taught was the word of God. And we know that what Jesus taught was not always expositions of the Old Testament. What we're indicating is what Jesus taught at times was something new. Something that didn't come from the Old Testament. Something that came on his own authority. And yet it is the word of God. Jesus himself identifies his teaching in this way. When he explains the parable of the sower. What is the seed? It is the word of God. In 8.11. We're in chapter 19. Turn to chapter 19. This is is really the climax prophetically of Jesus is, is in Luke 19 through 21 where Jesus holds court in the temple. Now the other, like I said, different gospels have different emphases. Not that there's any conflict, but Luke has no interest about the specific happenings of the Passion Week. Luke specifically generalizes. What's Jesus doing in the Passion Week? He's teaching in the temple. That's what he's doing. And then Luke draws our attention to six conflicts in that temple. And he bookends Jesus teaching in the temple with what I've told you before is an ellipsis. It's it's a similar phrase, letting us know we're dealing with a unit and also letting us know the focus of what's taking place. So look at Deuteronomy, I mean, look at Luke 19. 45 to 48, he entered the temple, began to drive out those who sold, saying this, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it the den of robbers. He was teaching the people in the temple, and the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. That's what Jesus doing during the Passion Week. He's teaching in the temple. Turn to 21. The end of this section, you can read through this and see the six different conflicts he has with the Sadducees and the elders and the scribes. But this section ends, verse 37, 38. Here's the other bookend of this section. And every day he was teaching in the temple. But at night he went out and lodged in the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning, all the people came to hear him, came to him in the temple to hear him. So Jesus is a prophet, and the last week of his life of the crucifixion, down till dusk, he is teaching the people who are hanging on his every word in God's house. And so Luke presents Jesus. Does he present him as the great prophet like Moses? You bet he does. Do we see him carrying out that prophetic work? You bet we do. Okay, so what? Third, third point, so what? What's the present significance of all this? So Jesus is the great prophet like Moses. So what? Turn to Acts 3. I, I can't improve upon Peter's application.
And let's back up a bit. He's going to reference the Deuteronomy passage in verse 22. Let's back up to 17. It's one of Peter's sermons early in Acts. Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ should suffer, he has fulfilled. Therefore, repent and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time of restoring all things, by which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. There's the carrot. There's the promise of blessing. Repent. Turn. The Lord. Peter is looking for the second coming of Christ in his lifetime. Then the stick. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. So what's the first application? It's pretty obvious. It's what God said in Deuteronomy. It's what God said in the Mount of Transfiguration. So Peter says here, listen to him. Listen to him. Now understand, listen to him means more than like an audible hearing. Pay heed to him. Receive his message. Receive his word. Listen to him. And Peter makes it clear, or be destroyed. If God has raised up a prophet like Moses, and he has, and if God prophet has brought about a great salvation and freedom for his people, then this one speaks as God on behalf of God, the word of God. And therefore, there's no neutrality in our response. We're either for him or against him. We're either receiving his word or we will be destroyed. That, that's what Peter says. The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to the prophet shall be destroyed from the people. God has raised up a prophet like Moses. Listen to him or be destroyed. Um, that, it's, there it is. There is no neutrality. There is moral responsibility upon hearing this. And practically what that means, point two, is confidently rely upon his words. Uh, we, we have so many sources for information. You can go, go on the internet, go to YouTube, and look up so many different places to find answers. Answers for laws of the land, answers for how to do your taxes, answers for how to deal with mud on the road, whatever. I've been looking for answers, trust me. Um, I did not get a tan paint job on my car. It's, nope. Um, and yet here is the one who comes speaking on behalf of God. And we can be tempted if we're not careful because this is a very old book. I and mean, let's face it, the newest portions of this book are 2,000 years old. To, to not be going here for our answers. But if God has spoken, and if God has spoken truly and trustworthily through his servant Jesus, then we need to depend and hang on those words. We need, like Jesus, to recognize that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word from the Father. That means that Jesus' word makes it so. And if Jesus' word conflicts with the wisdom of the culture, then the culture's wrong. Depend on his word. Jesus is emphatic on this point. Listen to this bold statement Jesus makes in Luke 21, 33. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Jesus' words are more sure than the sun setting tonight. 
than the gravity, whatever that is, that's holding you in your seat. That's what he says. Heaven and earth, this present order, pass away, his word endures. Which one is more dependable? Jesus' word is. We, We need to receive it and act like that. Now, we can pay lip service to that. But the practical implications come out this week as you make decisions, as you organize your life. Is there evidence that we are actually receiving Jesus' word, internalizing Jesus, hearing Jesus' word, or do we cast it aside? Well, that's interesting. That's nice. Make no mistake, there are those who hear his word, receive the salvation and the exodus that he delivers from sin, the covenant that he brings, and there are those who are destroyed. Um, That's the soul. It comes to a pretty practical head. If he is God's prophet, we'd be reading his word, memorizing his word, studying his word, hiding it in our heart. And not just his word, but the word of his commissioned emissaries, his apostles, as they write the New Testament. Jesus is our great prophet. Luke clearly demonstrates that. God has spoken. He has not stuttered. The decision for us is, will we listen? Will we rely? Or will we be destroyed? Our great prophet. Second, and we'll just get into this a little bit. Jesus is our great high priest. Now, turn to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5, very helpfully, um, very helpfully gives us some understanding of what a priest is. So if, if a prophet, and you've heard me say this before, if a prophet stands between God and man on behalf of God speaking to men, what does a priest do? Hebrews 5.1 For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. So you see how helpful that is? A priest fundamentally is one who goes between man and God on behalf of men offering gifts and sacrifices to God interceding For the people, he represents to God. So both the prophet and the priest stand between God and man. One, I like to think of it as with God behind him speaking to the people. Moses comes down from the mountain. He's met with God. And here's what God says. The priest approaches God at the sacrifice at the altar and the tent of meeting and the temple. And on behalf of the people offers sacrifices for sins, intercessions, and prayers. That's a priest. And again, you may not realize this, but you and I need a priest. Job recognized the difficulty. How can I approach God? How can I plead my case before God? He is not a man like I am. I I need somebody who can go between the two of us. And because we are sinful, again, these are alien thoughts to our culture. Well, self-esteem is, brother, you're special, you're important. Of course God would think you're great and swell. No, the, the, the Bible assumes, how on earth could I draw near to God? He's holy. He's just. He's righteous, and I'm not. How could I draw near to God? And the priest functions as the answer to that. In that sense, Moses functions in a priestly function as well. As he draws near to God, he offers sacrifices. And very quickly, the priesthood is raised up, and under the law, it is governed the tribe of Levi, you're blank here, by the way. Priests act on behalf of man towards God. Now turn to Psalm 110. Psalm 110. 
But keep your finger in Hebrews, will you? We might be back there. As a side note, if you only um, are familiar with two Messianic Psalms, you could hardly do better than Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. Psalm 2 and Psalm 110 are some of the most quoted passages in the New Testament. And Psalm 110, um, when we deal with Jesus as king, we'll we'll look at the first one. And Jesus makes the point in in Luke 20, to those who have too low a view of the Messiah, how is is the Messiah David's son when David calls him Lord? But we're not looking at that right now. That's verse 1. I want to look at verse 4. Um, one's only significant insofar as we're recognizing that this coming Messiah, this coming Davidic king, here's your blank, the Messiah would be a Melchizedekian. You can just put an M in the blank, that's fine. I won't be check. Melchizedekian priest. He'd be a priest like Melchizedek. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now you're Possibly sitting here thinking, well, if priest was a strange enough concept, I didn't realize he needed the priest. Melchizedek, who? Melchizedek was the, uh, actually, the, the first priest mentioned in the Bible. You go do a study, um, just type in the concordance. In, in, in Genesis, Abraham comes back from defeating um, some kinglets, and Melchizedek comes out, priest of God most high, the king of Salem, the very town that would later be um, conquered by David and renamed Jerusalem, king of peace. And Abraham authors a tithe of one-tenth of all that he has to Melchizedek, and Melchizedek blesses him and brings out bread and wine, and they eat. And the, the expectation then is that this Messiah who would be king and who would rule, according to the announcement of Psalm 110, is also going to be a priest. These offices will be conjoined together. In the Old Testament, there were kings who tried to offer sacrifices. Saul was rejected because he tried to offer the sacrifice. He was king, tried to function as a priest, and was rejected. Other kings have tried that as well. But here, the Davidic king, David's greater son, would also be a priest. But he won't be a priest from the tribe of Levi. He'll be a priest in the order of Melchizedek. We'll come back to that in a little bit. But that's the expectation. Psalm 110 unites Davidic king and rule with priesthood. Now, with what time we have, let's take a look at how Luke presents Jesus in this way. The book of Hebrews actually is very, very, very helpful in drawing out the implications of this. So, how does Jesus get presented as a priest? First, Jesus healed and cleansed the people. Now, the priest didn't actually cleanse people, but they're directly associated and connected with the cleansing of people, such that if you had a a, a leprosy or discharge or anything that made you unclean, it was the priest you went to who checked you out. It was the priest who would give you the certificate of all clear. All of that clean, unclean is related around the priest's. And so I think it's fair to say in in some sense, Jesus' cleansing and healing of people is is at least the beginnings of a foreshadowing of some priestly function on his part. So in Luke 4, 40, 
When the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid hands on every one of them and healed them. By the way, that's significant because in the Levitical concept of clean and unclean, the unclean is contagious. It contaminates. It spreads. So explicitly saying Jesus is touching these people. And rather than Jesus getting unclean, they become clean. It's remarkable. That's highlighted even further in chapter 5, verse 12. While I was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. I mean, I love that. He's not just a leper. He's full. It's almost overflowing with leprosy. He is covered head to toe. He's a leper. Not a little patch. He's full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. And any student of the Old Testament would shrink back. Oh, no. And said, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing. And when we looked at this passage um, a couple of years ago, I made the point that there's only one object in the Old Testament that makes things clean when they touch it, and it's the altar of sacrifice in which the priest offered up the sacrifices. You can see that in Numbers 5.2 and Numbers 7.14. We don't have time for that now. But here is one who has contagious holiness. Prior to this, the unclean contaminates. Here, Jesus' holiness cleanses and spreads. And Luke's presenting that. Um, Jesus healed and cleansed the people. The same thing happens when he heals the ten lepers in chapter 17. And he tells them again, go show yourself to the priest. Um, more importantly, turn to Luke 22. And this is where Jesus' priestly function becomes more explicit. In Luke 22, Jesus clearly identifies himself as the sacrifice. Remember the context is they're celebrating Passover. And Passover was, after all, the memorial meal that celebrated and recognized the great act of deliverance that God did through Moses or at least under Moses' headship, leadership, in delivering the people from, from Egypt, from delivering them from slavery, specifically the act of God passing over sins, of the, the penalty of death being withheld because of the blood of another, in their case, the blood of a lamb. And the people would not only put the blood of the lamb on the lentils of the door, but they would eat the lamb in a meal this lamb who was killed on their behalf, a substitute and a sacrifice. And as Jesus eats this meal with them, he, he reinterprets it and gives it a new significance. What we call communion of the Lord's table is Jesus modified, co-opted, reinterpreted, re-implemented, however you want to use the word. It's, it's the Passover meal modified and given to us as the Lord's Supper. 
When the hour came, verse 14, he reclined at table and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, but for I tell you that I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves, for I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. By the way, in Leviticus, after... Um, Aaron's sons are burned up, offering strange fire. There comes a prohibition of any priest actively serving in the temple can't drink alcohol. It's interesting. Jesus, as we would understand it, who's about to ascend and offer intercessions on our behalf, says, I'm not going to drink any more wine until I drink it with you in the kingdom. That's interesting. He took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup... After they had eaten, saying, this cup is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. There's a lot going on there, but at least Jesus is saying, I'm that sacrifice. The blood that was formerly of a lamb that you put over your doorpost is my blood purchasing a covenant. My blood bringing a salvation, which means Jesus then is identifying himself as the sacrifice. Jesus offered up a perfect sacrifice for sin. Jesus, and that's what priests do. Remember, they act on behalf of people in relationship to God, offering up sacrifices. Now, now in light of this, turn to Hebrews 7. Um, Hebrews 5 through 7 probably is the longest extended meditation and treatment on Jesus' priesthood. Uh, we don't have time to go through all of it now, but I just want to highlight one or two points. The epistles are helpful in interpreting, drawing out the significance of what the Gospels tell us. The Gospels tell us what happened, and then the epistles frequently tell us, now, understand the meaning, the significance of what happened. Hebrews 7, look at verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attained through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, What further need would there be for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change of priesthood, there is necessarily a change in law as well. Again, he's saying a lot of things there, but the point is this. The, The priesthood of Levi corresponds to the law of Moses. Law of Moses governs it. The, the priesthood, he says here, was the law was given on the basis for under it or on the basis of it, the people received the law. Jesus is bringing a new covenant. Jesus is not a, a Levitic priest. He's a priest of the order of Melchizedek. And the author of Hebrews is saying, therefore, it's fitting, and it, it shouldn't be surprising that, that and here are your blanks, Jesus, um, actually, I, I skipped one. This is point four. Jesus brought a new covenant and law. Jesus brought a new covenant and law. We'll go back and cover the point I missed. Jesus brings a new covenant he says as much in the passage we just read. And by virtue of this sacrifice, this new priesthood, this new covenant, there's a new law as well. And there's a lot we could say about that. We could talk about that in the ABF time. Um, we also see Jesus functioning in a priestly way towards his disciples. Now we're back to point three. Um, very quickly, in Luke twenty-two thirty-two, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. When you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus prayed for and blessed his disciples. Luke 
2450, and when he led them as far as Bethany, lifting up his hands, he blessed them. That's priestly as well. It's, it's remarkable. Peter's restoration is not due to Peter's tenacity, the strength of Peter's faith. Peter falls asleep, doesn't pray. It's the strength of Jesus' prayers. That, that's a high priest for you right there, an effective high priest. Peter can fall flat down on his face, deny the Lord, not heed the warning, not pray in the garden. But Jesus prayed for him, and he will be restored. And we have a high priest who is interceding on the right hand of the Father for us. So we see Jesus interceding for, blessing his, and we see the effect of his intercession. Um, very quickly, let's just close on the second point. So what? So what? Go, to, go back to Hebrews 7, or if you're still there. First, trust in his final sacrifice. Trust in his final, his perfect sacrifice. The author of Hebrews is writing to people who apparently were tempted to return back, shrink back to the temple worship. And one of the points he's trying to make is, man, after this great high priest came and offered himself up, there is no more sacrifice. There's no other place to turn to. If his sacrifice isn't good enough, to use the language of Hebrews 10, there therefore then no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Look at verse, let's pick it up in verse 23 or 22. And notice how the author of Hebrews wants to emphasize the superiority, the betterness. Verse 22, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. That's one better thing. Priests would die, they have to raise up new priests Jesus doesn't die. He's already died once. Death has no claim over him. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to him, near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. That's better. No vacation, no days off. He's constantly, always interceding. We've seen the effect of his intercession on Peter. For it is indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separate from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for their own sins, and then for those of the other people. Here's another way Jesus' priesthood is better. One sacrifice, one and done. It's over. No more, no more continuing sacrifices, no sacrifices, first for his own sins. One sacrifice. Since he did this, once for all, when he offered up himself. It's amazing what the book of Hebrews points out. Jesus is both the priest offering up the sacrifice and he's the sacrifice being offered up on our behalf. He's also the altar. We don't have time. The law appoints men in their weakness as a high priest, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. So, the same way that if God truly has raised up this prophet like Moses, we ought to listen to him. If God has raised up this great high priest who offers up a final, once for all, sufficient sacrifice, trust in that and no other. Trust in his final sacrifice. Don't, don't look to anything else to deal with your sins. Whether it's your own good deeds, your own sacrifice and hard work, whether it's 
any other promise. Trust in his final sacrifice, his once for all sacrifice. And turn to Hebrews 4, we'll close here. I love this. This is one of my favorite passages in, in the New Testament. Hebrews 4. Draw near to him for help in time of need. Um, prophets can be scary. Prophets speak for God. Prophets announce judgment. Prophets can kill people. I mean, <laughs> Korah stood up in a rebellion against Moses and the ground swallowed him up. Prophets have notably called down fire from heaven and burned whole companies of soldiers. And their allegiance is fundamentally with God. They're identifying with God first and foremost. And yes, the, the priest does too, but there's a sense in which the priest is also identifying with his people. He's functioning on their behalf. And so Jesus, glorified in heaven, can be scary in one sense, right? He's the Lord of glory. When, he, when Last time we see him in the book of Revelation, he is terrifying. John the Apostle, who at the Last Supper, laid his head in his side, falls down fat on, flat on his face as if dead. And yet we read this. All of this depending on Jesus' priesthood. If to you the doctrine, the notion that you are welcome to draw near to Jesus, that Jesus... Um, loves and comforts you, as we heard earlier, for those tears that died. If, if that aspect of our Savior, his meek and mild come unto me is, is something you appreciate, you're appreciating his priesthood. Verse 14, Since then we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. So what he's saying is our fear might be, this is Job's fear, how can I approach God? I'm a sinner. I'm not like him. But when we come before the throne of God, there is one at his right hand, our advocate, who is like us, made like us in every respect yet without sin. And he has also been tempted. So when you come, when I come for the 7,000th time this year to confess the same sin I've confessed 6,999 times before. And you're tempted to think, man, if God were anything like me, he would have been tired of hearing about this about 6,995 times before. And we're tempted to think that God's just going to say, seriously, what, what has gotten into you? Why would you do that? I mean, God's holy. How can he relate? You have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses precisely because he's been tempted in every respect. Now he's victorious, he never sins, but does he know the power of temptation? Does he know the, the, the need of strength and endurance? And we get this wonderful, wonderful encouragement in verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of Need. I love that passage. Because in my flesh, I'm only tempted to draw near to God when I feel I've done well. Not in my time of need, but my time of triumph. I, I keep wanting to revert to my relationship to God like, like a cat to its owner. 
You ever see the cats bring tribute and they leave it on the front doorstep every now and then? Or like a knight to a king and you go off and you go fight a battle, you, you win a jousting competition, you get the, the dragon's head, whatever, and you bring it back to your Lord and you say, look what I've done for you, Lord. And he's pleased. I'm told to come when I need help, which I think means when I just messed up, when I just denied the Lord, when I just was unfaithful, when I just yelled at my wife, when I just fill in the blank, that's when I'm encouraged to draw near the throne of grace when I need help. And I can do that because I have a high priest who sympathizes. Now, the Christian walk is not knights serving their king and liege, going out to do battle and coming back with tribute. The, 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 the Christian walks like a child walking through the woods with his dad, who every time he hears a sound, clings to his dad's leg. And a father who delights in his child's reliance upon him. He's mindful of our frame. We are dust. And yes, he disciplines us. Yes, our Heavenly Father disciplines us. He doesn't just make allowances for sin. But when we're sorry, when we need help, when we say, Dad, I messed up again, he welcomes us. And our great high priest is the basis for that. Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus is thinking of his disciples. They're not thinking of, of their faithfulness. They're arguing about who's going to be the greatest. I'm back in Luke 22 again. And Jesus is praying for them. And in, in the face of Peter's hubris, Lord, I'll follow you even to death. Peter, you're going to deny me three times tonight. And he warns them twice, you need to pray. Pray, because an hour of testing is coming upon you. Satan himself has requested to tempt you. And do they heed Jesus' warning? They say, wow, I better get down and pray. They fall asleep. In light of all of that, if it were me, I'd be tempted to think, then fine, you get what's coming to you. you made your bed, you sleep in it. I warned you once, twice, three times. Jesus prays to them. Jesus restores him because that's what priests do. They, they have compassion on their people. They intercede for their people. And we have a great high priest. Jesus' priesthood is the basis of all of that. And so rather than feeling that your sin disqualifies you from drawing near to God, humble yourself and trust that you have a high priest who sympathizes and come. Come for help. Help. I messed up again. Help, I need grace. Because we have a high priest who sympathizes. All of that is the so what, practically speaking. Our intimate fellowship. We, we have a high priest who, who lets the sinful woman wipe his feet with her hair. Instead of access we have to God. All dependent upon Jesus' high priestly function. And at the end of the day, what I'm trusting in to see me home to glory, to keep me faithful is not the strength of my faith. Oh yeah, I need, I need to take God's warnings seriously. I need to take the measures that he calls on me to persevere, things like fellowship with one another, being in his word. But at the end of the day, it's not my grip on him, but his grip on me. It's at the end of the day, it's he will hold me fast. My high priest intercedes for me and his prayers are effective and he will not let me, he will not let you slip through his hands. And we got two-thirds of the way through the message. We'll pick it up next week. Let's pray and, and go about our day in the confidence that we have a high priest. 
We have a great prophet. God has spoken and he cares and he bids us draw near. A sacrifice has been given. Let's pray. Lord God, your son um, delivers your word to us. Your son offers up the once and for all final and perfect sacrifice for us. Your son intercedes forever without break, always on our behalf. And his prayers are effective. And so, Lord, even though we know we are unworthy and even though we feel shame for our sin, we would draw near boldly, confidently, because we know who is there at our side in your very throne room, our great high priest after the order of Melchizedek, your great prophet like Moses who speaks to us the words of God. Oh, Lord, let us hear him and listen to him and not be destroyed. Let us trust in his once-for-all perfect sacrifice and no other. And let us have confidence that he cares, that he intercedes, and let us draw near for help. Lord God, we need it. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed.